0: This episode of The Candid Frame is sponsored by Charcoal Book Club. The Charcoal Book Club is a monthly subscription service for photo book enthusiasts. Working with the most respected names in contemporary photography, Charcoal selects and delivers essential photo books to a worldwide community of collectors. Each month, members receive a signed first edition monograph and an exclusive print to add to their collections. Each month, members receive a signed first edition monograph and an exclusive print to add to their collections. Join the club by visiting charcoalbookclub.com and use the promo code THECANDIDFRAME at checkout and receive a 10% discount on your first membership payment. I've been reading a book about the history of photography. It's been interesting to take a deep dive into the story of photography. It's, it's fascinating to learn about the cultural, political, and social events surrounding not only the creation of photography, but how over time it shaped as well as helped shape the way we see each other and ourselves. When it comes to the photographic process, we have it easy today, as compared to those original photographers who worked with glass and metal plates and sometimes very toxic chemistry. So. It surprises me to find photographers today who have fully invested in these old photographic processes. Shane Belkowicz doesn't just dabble with the wet plate process. It's the only photographic process he's practiced seriously since picking up a camera. He has regularly used the process practiced by less than a thousand photographers around the world to create powerful and emotional portraits, some of which he has featured in his first book, Northern Plain Native Americans, A Modern Wet Plate Perspective. Shane's story possesses all the elements of a great story and a wonderful conversation. By the time you're done with this episode, I hope you'll agree. This is Ibarian X, and welcome back to The Candid Frame. Well, first off, Shane, just welcome to the show. Thank you so much. Really good to have you. Uh, it's been fascinating looking at your work and finding out uh, your story with not just the book project, but the other work that you've been doing with, you know, this web plate collodion process. But you, let's let's start off with how you found out about this process in the in the first place, because this was your introduction to photography.
1: Yeah, um, I had never had any interest in photography um, until 2012 when I saw this. Uh, this photograph online and something just drew me in that I can't really explain to this day. I've been trying to put words around it. I asked what it was and it was, uh, the gentleman told me it was a wet plate photograph and I just fell down this rabbit hole within 45 days. Um, I had a, a five by seven large format camera built for me um, by star camera company. I would never been in a dark room before, so I had to figure out how to, uh, you know, the, the process, the wet plate process requires a, um, a dark room so I had to figure out what 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 is what composes a dark room and, and what, what do you do in a dark room. Yeah. Um, and, and I did all that in about 45 days and I made my first plate on October 4, 2012. I just haven't looked back. <laughs> usually Are you usually that kind of a deep diver almost immediately when something sort of really piques your interest? It, it seems it seems that way um the uh, i was restoring a motorcycle at the time and i was i had a deep dive into that and before that i had restored a, a 65 porsche but they were you know i think they were me starting to figure out how to create you know i was i was completely involved in both these restorations and from every if you ask both the builders um bill hamilton who did the porsche and josh withers um who's a photography friend now that I just immerse myself in in the, the restorations. And, and I think it was this search for something creative. What came out of it is me um, in the researching the, my motorcycle. Um, uh, Paul DeLoreans, he just did a, uh, the Int is the largest log for motorcycles, vintage motorcycles in the world. And he just did a story this week about our story, about where he told me that, about this wet plate. And then he explained to me what it was. And then I just kind of, next thing he knew, I was out there creating and uh, here we are, eight years later, still friends, and and um, it's just been this um, uh, unbelievable ride. To be honest, it seems like all of these, all of these, you know, restoring
0: the the motorcycle, the car, you know, the the wet plate collodion. That part of it was, yes, it's about being creative. But it's also trying to. Figure things out, you know, because each one poses a situation where you'll have a problem or an obstacle and that you have to come up with a solution. Mm-hmm. And I would imagine that that's part of the, the, the fun and the thrill of it is trying to figure things things out.
1: Do you think that that's a big part of what, what drives you? Well, my, my day job is I'm a CEO. I'm a founder of a dot com. So technology since 1998. I mean, I've been immersed in technology and I, you know, I think the bike and the motorcycle and the wet plating is the furthest thing from technology we have. You know, these aren't modern. Yeah. These aren't modern things that we're working on to the vehicles and, and the process. So there's something tangible about the analog. Um, there's something tangible there that you just don't get in digital form. And um, I don't know if there's any crossover from those those things, but I, I know, and again, this is in hindsight, and retrospective. I'm looking back, I think I was searching for, you know, as soon as I finished the, the car, I, I was yearning to continue this, this creative process. So it was right onto a motorcycle and I had never owned a motorcycle or anything at that point. So, um, you know, you <laughs> asked me about, you asked me about, I'd never driven a, I, I don't laugh. I had never driven a motorcycle. <laughs> so I find myself restoring a 1970, 71 BM, uh, BMW. A cafe racer from the ground up and had never been, well, I never had been in a Porsche either before my car. So my car, it took three years to restore that car with Bill Hamilton. I bought it unseen in New York. It went down to Texas and there it was restored. So I, the first time I ever sat in a Porsche was my fully restored 1965 Porsche 356. So yeah, if you ask my wife um, in the documentary, she, you know, she kind of alludes to that, that it's kind of my, Kind of my mo of doing this kind of crazy deep dive stuff, but I find myself um, this isn't something that I'm coming out from. Like I, I yeah. really found like this is there's something very meaningful to this photography thing that I'm whatever mm-hmm. it is, however you want to describe it. And I, I tell I had I had uh, 13 students out today from Bismarck State College today um, for a demonstration, and you know I told them um, you know you just got to find your passion, you just got to you know keep searching. I was 44 years of age no talent whatsoever you know i can't paint i don't you know i'm not a poet i don't i don't have any talents and here i i find myself on this path but it's it's very meaningful to me and it's not like oh this is a fad and i'm going to move on to something else yeah Um, i I, i'm just i'm stuck here now and i'm just um i just i just feel like i don't have enough time now to do everything that i want to do with this process but you know you can't have any regrets
0: yeah, for people who are not familiar with the wet collodion process, process, why don't you briefly explain what what it is?
1: Yeah, so it's like the great great grandfather of photography. Um, a real quick uh, history lesson: the daguerreotype. It was one of the first photographic processes that became commercialized where people could have their portraits taken. It was about 1838. Louis Daguerre, a Frenchman, invented that. It was They were polishing a piece of uh, copper to a high-polished finish, and they were using some mercury, and they were heating it up, and they were getting these images. And it was like the first time that you could go get your portrait taken. But you understand that it was such a significant scientific achievement photography was at the time. So about 10 years later, uh, Frederick Scott Archer, in about 1848, we think he started and he published a, and it wasn't a long document, but in The Chemist was a um, scientific journal. He shared... wet plate collodion process with the world. So he had worked on that for a couple of years and he had developed a new way of taking pictures and it was revolutionary. And, and, you know, quickly the daguerreotype was set aside and everyone was doing wet plating and wet plating only went around. um, So his name was Frederick Scott Archer. It was only good. It was only popular for about 35 years by about 1885. They decided, they figured out how to go get from the wet plate to the dry plate. And to explain to your listeners the wet plate, I have to pour the plate. I actually actually make the emulsion and pour it on the plate in the field or in my studio. So I'm actually making, the, I'm making a piece of, for instance, sheet film on a piece of glass out of silver nitrate. So, um, but it's on a piece of glass or, you know, if your listeners know about tin types, I mean, most people know about this process. Yeah. What, a, what a tin type is, don't be confused. I'm an ambrotypist, which means eternal impression. Um, it just means that I make my my wet plates on glass instead of tin. So the tin type and the wet, and the wet plate process, they're all the same. And I'm just an ambrotypist because I make something on a piece of glass. There's something about the fragility if I took your portrait, you came into my studio and I took your portrait on a piece of tin, which I've done, or a piece of um, glass and said, which one do you want? And I handed them both to you. I, I can't imagine you'd ever pick the piece of tin over this this delicate, heavy piece of glass. It's just something very romantic about these processes. And the fact that you have to covet the image, you know, it's fragile if you drop it, it breaks and you lose yeah. it. So there's, there's, and you know, you would think, well, that's a bad thing. You'd rather have something tin. You could throw a tin type across the room and it will survive. Um, but that's not the point. The point is, you know, there's something there's something important about protecting or taking care of your images and, and on glass. It's just it's where I find myself. So in about 1885, they figured out because if the once I pour the, the chemicals onto the plate and immerse it in silver nitrate, if that plate dries before the exposure, I lose the image. So I can't let that plate ever dry. So you have to do everything. Once you pour the plate, you have to go through all these steps all the way through the exposure, the development, the fixing, the rinsing, the drying. That all has to occur. And then you get your image. There isn't taking a shot, going back to the studio four hours later, you know what I mean, And and developing something. So in 1885, dry plate came around where you could buy from Kodak Eastman, you could buy dry plates that were already sensitized in sleeves and you would just take them out in the field and you could take 50 pictures in the afternoon, keep them in the dark, you know, and and put them away and then come back to your studio weeks and months later and develop and fix them and stuff. And as soon as you freed yourself up from the dark room, the wet play process became obsolete. And, and that's really what was the, uh, I feel is one of the main contributors to the process falling off in 1885 is because a, a photographer can now, you know, take his camera and his plates and go out on the road and not have to worry about carrying a darkroom. When I took, you know, when I'm on the road with my wet plate camera, I have to have a darkroom. I got a germination tent. It's about the size of a a 50 gallon aquarium that I I climb into with my head and pull a shroud over me. I got these little red bicycle lights. So I actually have to have a darkroom in the back of my vehicle developing the plates on spot, which is a daunting task. It's a really daunting task. And and over a hundred years ago, guys were,
0: had their darkrooms in wagons.
1: Yeah, yeah, they had them in wagons. And what they did, and you know, they didn't have these electric lights. I used just bicycle lights, red bicycle lights for my safe lights in my dark room, but they would just have a piece of uh, red stained glass, they'd cut out a hole in the back of their box, whatever their dark room was, their portable dark room, and the and the light would come through the stained glass, so the red safe light would come through and they'd have to use the sun. So there was never you know, there's never taken photographs out, you know, at night in you know, in the Victorian era. I mean you had to there was only one light star strong enough. Um, to make photographs, and that was um, the sun. So there was no photography at night or anything like that. So you were really back in the day. You were really stuck for um, you know, what time of the days you could create and so forth. Like I had the students in earlier today, and their their class was like 10 o'clock in the morning and I named it in my natural light studio. I just did not have enough light coming in yet because in the early morning and and what time of the year it was, I had to turn on a continuous bulb here. But, you know, Frederick Scott Archer did not, couldn't go to a bank of continuous bulbs and turn them on and, you know, create, you were either use the sun or you didn't. But, you know, as you mentioned
0: before that uh, you had, you had a camera built specifically for for this purpose. And there are not they're not that many people who do this on a regular regular basis, or probably around a thousand if that. Uh, right. That's the about world. the number we're stuck in. Yep. Yeah. So in in terms of the you know, the resources, the chemistry and all those things that you would need, where do you go? I mean, it's not like you can go to your local camera store and pick up all this.
1: No, um, but, you know, just like there was back in the Victorian era, there's purveyors of wet clay chemicals today. So you can, I've got all the recipes for, I can get all the raw chemicals from any chemistry shop and and make my, you know, get my collodion. Collodion was, do you know anything about collodion, the medical Mm -hmm. application of collodion? So it was used to seal wounds shut back in the Victorian era. It was, uh, if you had a bottle of ether, if you were a doctor, you had a bottle of ether and you'd go to your gunsmith and you'd ask him for gun cotton, the wadding at the end of the rifle, you would just put that in your bottle of ether and you make collodion. So if you got a cut on your arm or a wound, puncture wound or something, you'd pour the collodion on there and hold it shut and it would seal the wound without any stitches. So that was the medical application. Archer did not... F- invent collodion he knew about this magical kind of like glue gluey substance and he figured out where his his solution was if he added bromide he knew that there was an affinity between bromide um, salt and silver nitrate that he could get silver nitrate to jump out of a silver nitrate bath and impregnate this collodion and that's how he made photosensitive plates so that was the real technological achievement of archer was figuring this 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 attraction between bromide and silver, and figuring out using collodion, this glue, this SERPY kind of uh, solution to um, adhere the silver molecules onto the plate. Yeah.
0: and it's it, and it's a very time restrictive process. You only have minutes after you've coated the the surface of the glass in order to expose it to light and and to process it. And I'm, you know, you can read about a technique, but when you actually have to do it, you really become
1: You really, it's a different, it's a different story. I mean, it's, it's one thing to read the historical record or your historical account of this. And then it's one thing to actually practice it. So there's a couple of very beautiful things about the wet plate process that I I could share if if you don't mind. The, The first thing is that these images are made out of pure silver on glass. So silver does not degrade silver will be here a thousand years from now these plates will be here a thousand years from now unbroken they do not they do not fade they do not deteriorate you know our inks and our pigments and our paints and everything else that we make images out of those all you know have issues with time and and the analogy that i use with the students when they come out is if you put a silver spoon on the ground and come back 500 years what's on the ground and the answer has to be a silver spoon and so these images are completely archival um, the Pitt Rivers Museum at the University of Oxford has taken 30 of my Native American plates next week. Um, they just uh, did a selection of them and and they will go over to their museum and they will be there for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years after I'm gone. Um, I have historic wet plates here, um, examples of 160-year-old plates, and they look as good today as they did the day they were made. So um, it's it's the, that whole thing is when you're making objects that are going to be here long after you're gone... And you think about it romantically, it just takes photography to a different level. Yeah. And it's a, a completely different experience in
0: terms of making a, a portrait along those lines. I I sat for a tintype sometime last year.
1: Oh, okay. And it, was, Great. and it was
0: really interesting to sit in front of the camera in that way, rather than just with a, you know, the contemporary camera where it's like 125th of a second. You just right. sit there and, and it's over and you're sitting there waiting as the exposure is, is made in front of you, you're looking into the lens. and because of the time that it takes to, for everything to get set up, uh, it was really interesting in terms of just me being present in the moment as opposed to just like posing for a second and making making the photograph. Uh, it's a really interesting dynamic from a subject point of view, but I'd love for you to talk about what do you think that that dynamic creates f- for in your experience, as opposed to, you know, the way that most people today make make a portrait.
1: Well, I think when you, you dabble in these longer exposures, like you said, do you remember how long your exposure was, by any chance?
0: Oh, I, it wasn't very long.
1: Okay, because you were outside yeah. maybe? Or were you, you were outside, year? yeah. Outside, yeah. So, you know, um, just to give your listeners an idea of exposure times, um, you know, outdoors. F8 will be about three seconds. Guess. I mean, when I took Greta Thunberg's wet plate, that's what, that's, I hit it on the mark with that. Um, if I'm in my studio um, today, when I took the student's plates, I took two plates today, it was 10 full seconds of exposure. So, you know, your iPhone is open for about one sixtieth of a second. So 10 full seconds would so take 600 times longer to take a wet plate than it does with the, the iPhone in your, in your back pocket. Um, and when you look at that, I'm actually taking a movie of you. These All these images, all the images you've seen in the book that I sent you and and so forth, my Native American, those are 10-second movies of every person. They just happen to be still lifes because what we do know, I'm an oncology nurse as well, we do know that the heart was beating. We knew that a couple shallow breaths occurred. We knew that there may be one, one quick blink. And what was very beautiful about this and what I just adore about this is I think is when people sometimes see my work, they see the thought that that person was having as I was taking their exposure. So it's not this, this sliver of time that you could almost argue. That's not that one sixtieth of a second is not any part of my life. You can't deny that I have 10 seconds of your life on that piece of glass. And, you know, I, like I said, I've, I've fallen down this rabbit hole. I'm a hopeless romantic when it comes to this. These are the, these are the ways that I look at these things, but it wasn't, it, I didn't always see it this way. This is after reflection and, and trying to understand what it is that's happening here in my studio um, and, and, trying to explain this because any, everyone who comes in, like, I don't know when you, when you got your tintype, but when people come in, I, I give them the whole, I give them the history of photography. I tell them what we're doing. It's all a collaboration. They come in and I explain every process to them. Cause I think when they, when they see those images and I take your portrait, I think there's some meaning that gets added to that portrait because they understand that this portrait was made from hand. Out of hand, like an artist's hand. Like my my glass is all cut by hand. I grab a ruler and a and a, and a three dollar glass cutter, and I cut my glass. And it's all sometimes it's kitty wampus, and it's not perfectly. And I could have a, a machine cut everything eight by ten and five by seven or whatever format I want perfectly. I could do that. I have no in, I have no interest in that. I like that if you look at one of my plates and it's a little a little wobbly. You know, yeah. there's there's something about the imperfections. Of that, and it shows no different than like if a painter made his own canvas. You know, you grab the board and you stretch the stretch the canvas or something like that. There's something more special about that than if a painter just went and got a you know bought something off the shelf. Um, so there, there's something there's something about that. The, the first the first ones that you made were of your brother and your wife. And tell me about some of the things that you learned from those early plates. Um, well, my brother, Chad, you know, people have asked me why I was he your first subject? And it was, well, he's the only guy standing around at the time. So he works <laughs> with me out at the business and, and, you know, I had my little camera set up and my two light fixtures. I had no idea what I was doing, none whatsoever. I didn't, I didn't know anything about exposure times. I got to be honest. I don't even think I understood that I was actually using light to actually make photographs at the beginning. I mean, I, that's mm-hmm. how a, a bunch of something, if you've never taken a class, you've never read a book. You've never had any introduction by anyone into photography. You got to, you know, you put yourself in that place. It's it's a different place than when you come to this through normal course of of, of learning about photography and, and the different elements of photography. So I had no no perspective on any uh, photography whatsoever. So we just guessed on that um, exposure, and and his image came to life and. And it was, um, I mean, we were jumping up and down and we were excited and it was just at that moment I was hooked and and I do, um, so that was October 4th, 2012. And I take his portrait on that day every year. So I have nine mm. portraits of my brother on that day celebrating that first plate. And, um, it's all, you know, the first portrait is he had his shirt off and there's a black background. It's a five by seven. So I haven't changed the format. And I got my brother as he's aged through the years. And, and, the, um, the idea for the series, it's called my brother through the years is I'm going to upon my death or upon my brother's death. Um, it will go to his oldest daughter, um, the entire series, however many plates we get to. So, um, mm. Something that we work on, and every year, you know, it's well, October's coming up, but we got he has to find a way into my studio, so it's kind of interesting seeing him change throughout the years. And during this series, he had lost his wife to cancer and so forth. And, oh, um, in some it's, um, it's telling the images are telling that you know you can look at them and you can almost see where he was having difficulties in his life. You know, it's it's interesting, I was reading recently
0: that the, um, that the image in the mirror that we see is not really the way people see us. That somehow mm-hmm. the, the mirror is actually creating a slight distortion. Mm-hmm. And, that if, and that if you, and there are certain mirrors that are out there that will actually reveal to you how other people see you. And a lot of people are shocked when they see that because they're so used to their their reflection. And I, and I know that from my experience getting the tintype made, I saw myself in a completely different way, not just because that just because of the inherent nature of that particular process, but there was just something about the image that in many ways kind of surprised me.
1: It doesn't lie. Yeah. It it doesn't, it doesn't lie somewhere it doesn't lie um you know we talked about the archivability of these plates and that tintype that you have and it'll be here long after you're gone but there's another thing that we can talk about briefly is the resolution of these images so we're making these images and molecules of silver and i don't know if there's the other photographer that took your wet plate explained this to you but molecules of silver um it takes about two billion molecules of silver at the tip of your finger to actually visualize it with the human eye so that tintype that you have you could take it to any university Ask for their most high-powered microscope and put your tintype under that microscope, and you will not get to the pixel or grain that makes up that image. So that photograph is the most – that tintype of you is the most high-resolution photograph that's ever been taken of in your life and will ever be taken of you. Uh-huh. You need an electron microscope to get to the pixel or grain of a wet plate. Are you, were you aware of that? No, I wasn't. That's amazing. Isn't that amazing? Do you know uh, silver, um, you know, the compound, you know, the, the metal silver, the heavy metal, is it is it native to – earth do you know oh i have no idea it's not there was never any enough energy in the creation of earth and i hope i'm not getting off the subject here but i'm you know i'm trying to throw some things that i you know that i adore about this process okay so there was never enough energy in the formation of earth to ever create any of the heavy metals the nickels the platinums the golds the silvers none of them they were all brought here by meteors or comets wow Okay. So the only place that the heavy metals have ever been formed are in the, when a, a star explodes and that's where there's enough energy. And that's why we can't make gold here on earth. Cause we don't have enough energy to make gold. We can't make lead here on earth. Cause we don't have enough energy to make lead. So you have to have the explosion of a star. That's the only time when a star, a supernova explodes, that's when enough energy is used to make these heavier elements. Then they, they get blown out into the, into the, uh, into the universe. They, they, capture onto they stick to some extraterrestrial body that's going through and it collides with earth and that's why you have pockets of gold like in San Francisco and Alaska it's not because there's something special about that it's just that's where a, a large meteorite with a bunch of gold collided with earth and spread its debris everywhere so all the images that i make are made out of this this cosmic dust that's it's, fantastic. It's, you know, the, so these images—they're—they're they're made out of they, the only way that that so silver molecules made it onto the plate is being transported here by a comet or a meteorite or extraterrestrial body colliding with Earth. Isn't that just? Wow, that is awesome. It, it's, it's cool,
0: right? So, t- tell me about the the, the book. So, uh, you call it a modern, a modern wet plate perspective?
1: Yes. I captured um just by happenstance i was uh trying to research a wet plate photographer by the name of orlando scott goff here in bismarck so i uh, you know you start doing this process and you start wondering well i wonder if there's someone else back in the victorian era that was actually a photographer in bismarck doing wet plated and sure enough i found this this gentleman orlando scott goff was his name never anything written about the man or anything but um i found newspaper clippings and stuff like that but what's attributed to goff which is where his um His big achievement was, is he took the very first photograph of sitting ball. Now, Sitting Bull went on to have multiple photographs taken of him over his life. He had, in fact, Sitting Bull realized that this was a, a, an income source for him, that if he could find a photographer and they knew that he was Sitting Bull, that he, they would pay him money to sit. So Sitting Bull had used this as an income source. So, um, Orlando Scott Goff, when, after Sitting Bull had come back from Canada, he was exiled into Canada and came back into the States. Orlando Scott Goff knew he was coming through Bismarck and um, offered him $50 which is equivalent to about, I want to say about $1,800 in today's money, to sit for him. So City Bull came in. Um, we don't know exactly. Uh, we know that uh, Goff had a studio in downtown Bismarck, and I drive by it every day going to work. It's in the Blockhouse building. But we know that City Bull came in, and the story is, is that City Bull he gave him the $50. City Bull came in, and gave him that one exposure, walked out the door. But what, what was most important is that it's the first ever time Everything before that was paintings or drawings or sketches of the man. Mm-hmm. This is the first ever photograph. So I, I've learned about that. And then through that, I learned about the Smithsonian Institute. Uh, I read an article where they were going to, they had some leggings, and I want to say a tough of hair of Sitting Bulls, um, that they wanted to give back to Sitting Bulls family, that, that they thought these were personal items. And that they wanted to give these, these items back to Sitting Bull's family, modern day family and his, his relatives. So, um, it was like a seven year exhaustive search finding the rightful owner, the oldest living person that they could come up with. And, and it was Ernie Lapointe, the great grandson of Sitting Bull. And Ernie had told them early on when they came snooping around the first time that he was, but he, you know, they had to do their due diligence over this time because you could about imagine the, the dollar value on leggings of sitting bowl. I mean, you were talking hundreds of thousands, if not millions of dollars, you know, leggings of sitting bowls. So the Smithsonian identified Ernie LaPointe and they gave those leggings and that those personal items back to his family through Ernie. Um, I found out about Ernie and found out that he was only about 150 miles away from me in Leeds, South Dakota. I called him on the phone. He picked up the phone and I said, Ernie, I'm Shane Balk, which I'm a wet plate photographer. I I explained Goff to him. He says, well, I know about Goff. He knew about the photograph, obviously. Mm -hmm. I wasn't telling him anything. And I said, will you come into my studio 135 years after your great grandfather did and have your portrait taken in the same process that um, Goff took your great grandfather's photograph? And he was in within a week. And to this day, we're, we're dear friends. So that one portrait that I had never had a Native American um, friend or you know acquaintance or anything up to that point, and Ernie Lapointe came in and, and gave me that chance. And um, it's called Eternal Field in that book. There's a the picture where you standing out in the field. Yeah. You, you, what you don't know about it, if you look at that, it's go, Eternal Field. Ernie Lapointe, wet plate. Um, there's a waste management dumpster just like five ten feet out of frame out of, out of frame there's there was semis and cars there's a interstate freeway right behind him where i was taking his portrait he was looking at me like this guy's crazy how's this going to turn out there was cars driving by ernie during the exposure but they're just moving too fast to see it but um there's no evidence of any of that only I, I i like telling that story because it's fun to tell the story of what actually was going on in that exposure you think that he's standing out this is a field just for outside of my my warehouse and I was able to capture this this iconic photograph of of Ernie LaPointe my very good friend and he's uh I mean we just talked this week so book number two is coming out um I called it uh it's called Northern Plains Native Americans a modern white plate perspective it's pretty much sold out now I had a thousand copies and there were some two thousand trade uh, edition copies and then they're almost gone too I believe um that were they went out to Barnes and Noble and stuff but um so I'm starting on book two so the goal is a 20-year journey to capture 1,000 Native Americans in the, in the process. So it all started with my good friend, Ernie, and I'm at plate 451, and I've been working on this for about seven years now. You know, like this Friday, I've got I've got five Native Americans coming in and sitting. I had a gentleman two weeks ago flew in from, um, flew in, flew in from California, had people come from as far as Florida to have their portraits uh, taken for this series. So I call it a modern wet plate perspective because I wanted to I d- I'm, we're not pretending that these people are in the Victorian era. Um, mm-hmm. All the regalia and everything that you see. Some people think that I'm like, we're playing dress up or like I have props here or something like that. It's, it's nothing like that. Um, are you familiar with Edward Curtis and his Native American? Oh,
0: ret- yeah. Yeah. Because I know that was one of the controversies. in terms It was of- one of the
1: controversies. And I was aware of this. So I don't in all my for- Native American portraits, nothing's ever introduced. So they either bring it in or it's not used. And I've been very, very strict with that. So, you know, I would never hand someone a bow or a spear. You know, there's times that I've done creative work. But if it's for the series, the actual serious series, um, it's never, I never introduce anything. They have to bring it or it's not used. So I'm trying to keep the integrity of it.
0: This fall, I have been buying a lot of photo books both by well-known photographers and people who are completely new to me. It's been an important way, not only for me to spend my time, but also to train my eyes to see a little differently. I learned so much looking at images on a printed page, and that's completely different than when I'm looking at a screen, be it on my phone or a computer. When I sit down in my chair with that book in my lap, I'm fully dedicated to immersing myself in that photographer's work. That's one of the reasons I'm so happy to have Charcoal Book Club as a sponsor. They curate and offer books from great contemporary photographers. Because of their special relationships with publishers and these photographers, they offer you first edition signed copies of some of these photographers' books delivered to you each month. They offer free shipping to the US, Canada, and the UK. It's subsidized elsewhere. And if you're not feeling that month's selection, that's okay. You can swap it for a different one of similar value. Do yourself a favor, visit their website to see what they've offered in the past and what you have to look forward to. Join the club at charcoalbookclub.com today. And remember, use the promo code, thecandidframe at checkout and receive a 10% discount on your first membership payment. And thanks to the many of you who have chosen to support the Candid Frame financially this year. Your contributions have allowed us to continue to produce the show on a weekly basis and meet all the costs of production. If you've enjoyed this season but haven't contributed yet, it's not too late, and it's easy to do by becoming a Patreon supporter. You can do that by contributing $5, $10, $20 or more a month by visiting patreon.com forward slash The Candid Frame. Just $5 a month will make a big difference for us. Thank you, as always, for your support. So how did how did this one portrait turn into this idea and this series that's becoming a, a you know a life's work?
1: Well, the state historical society. I offered it to the state historical society of North Dakota. So that that's a very important portrait for me for these archives. Um, um, and that was the first portrait that went into the state archives. So they said yes, we would love to take the the wet plate of Bernie Lapointe into our archive. And that started it all. I've got about 650 plates with them so far, Uh, a bunch of my Native American, all my Native American um, portraits for the series. Uh, But I do have other, you know, um, personal plates and stuff like that. And um, so that was the first archive. They just kind of, uh, they identified that uh, I was from here and that I was, I was doing something significant. When we first started with the State Historical Society, they would have to approve. I mean, it's obviously it's expensive to curate plates indefinitely. I mean, it's, it's a huge honor, if you can but right. imagine. So they would have to have this approval process they would, would say, OK, well, what do you want to give? What do you want to donate or whatever? And I would tell them and then they would say, yay or nay. Um, but then I got uh, I took that photograph of Vander Holyfield, the four time heavyweight champion of the world, and the Smithsonian took that into their archives. And the next Monday after the State Historical Society heard that the Smithsonian took Evander, they sent me a nice little email saying, "By the way, Shane, we'll accept we'll accept anything that you're willing to donate from here on out." Which was really important for me because then I could get my creative work in there. It wasn't just you know what they wanted to get in there. Like I've got portraits yeah. of my children, I've got some my creative pieces in there. So I it unlocked the door. So Ernie's plate unlocked the door for me. Um, tomorrow I'm traveling to the State Historical Society. I'm going to get, I've got 18 plates in a box that's going to be um, gifted, um, you know, it's a gift from me in my studio to the, the, the residents of North Dakota. And it's, it's just a huge honor. And then it just slowly, you know, there's, there's 27 archives around the world that have my, my work including the Heard Museum. The Library of Congress has the Greta Thunberg. Um, I, I mentioned the Pitt Rivers Museum. So there's some, um, there's different, uh, the Nordiska Museet in, um, in Sweden has the, the other Greta plate. Um, so I, I've got these 27 archives around the world that are cura- you know, curating my work. But it all started with um, that, that portrait of Ernie LaPointe. He, he knocked down the door, not only for the historical society here, but then that opened the door for other historical societies.
0: Uh, there's a woman who writes one of the prefaces in the book. It's Margaret? The
1: name. Yeah, Margaret? Margaret? Margaret, yep.
0: Yeah, tell us about her and her role in, in making this happen.
1: Well, she's uh, she's my sister. Um, she was one of my early sitters, had come in, um, Margaret Yellowbird, and uh, she came in and she just really enjoyed the process. And that you're going to understand that when I first started, I was just going to do 10 portraits of Native Americans. I thought that was going to be quite the achievement. Like, how does this gentleman that doesn't have any friends in this community going to earn the trust of 10 Native Americans and and get these 10 portraits. And then Margaret came along and she, um, you know, she brought friends and other friends and she just kind of, she put her, her, you know, her name out there on my behalf and uh, vouched for me and people just started coming in. And um, so Margaret came out, I sat for me and then, um, she said, can I come out again? And she just kept coming out. So a lot of those first early Native American portraits was Margaret was there and she was making sure the regalia was right. And she was helping with the composition and making sure feathers were right and that everything was respected and everything like that. And then at, at some point it got to the point where, um, Calvin Grinnell, the, the Hidatsa elder, uh, had called me on the phone and says, I've got your name. I said, well, what do you mean, Calvin? He says, well, I have your name. I said, well, I don't know what you mean. He says, I have your Native American name. So he says, I'd like to have a formal ceremony in your studio next weekend. So with exchanging of gifts and witnesses in, in the whole nine yards. And he had that um, he had that for uh, ceremony for me and gave me the name Shadow Catcher, which is Meish Kagoche in Hadatsa. So at that point, the largest honor of my life, bar none, yeah. um, receiving this name. But at that point... Um, now people know me as shadow catcher and now they don't come in as complete strangers. They come into my studio as sisters and brothers of mine. And it's, it's, it's amazing experience. Like I'll have people come in from Wisconsin and, and when they walk in, it's, it's like I'm their brother and it's, um, so it just something changed. And, um, and I was really dedicated to the series prior to my naming ceremony, but after this, I just, I I cannot let them down. Um, It's been something that I'm really determined to get to that thousand portraits, but it's going to take me 15 to 20 years to get there. It's a a life-changing
0: effort, how you were talking about the project in terms of it being representative of 250 images, that each one will be... 50 will be selected for each book. So you'd have a a total of four books.
1: I was going to put all 250 images in each book. so represent every image, but the book was going to be over 200 bucks. And I just, I couldn't do that. I just, nobody's going to buy a $200 book. So I had to do some kind of editing and I decided that I was going to pick my favorite 50, um, my favorite 50 images of the 250 and, and do each volume. So when it's all said and done, we'll have, we'll have four volumes on the. It seems like a long time away from now, though, I mean, I can do an entire Friday's work and just get one plate, you know?
0: So as you said, you know, you're running a normal business and it's Friday is your day to dedicated time for, you know, for shooting and, and doing all the work that you do for that. And, you know,
1: you're also married and you raise some kids. Yeah, I've got four four children, my my wife and Bonnie, we've been together nearly 20 years. So I, I built the studio here um, on my property at, at our house. So you walk down the hill about 75 yards and the studio's right here because um, I, I just wanted it to be, you know, at our home so that, you know, I can run down here. It's it's like this safe haven, this natural light studio. I can come down here and, and it's like an epicenter, too, for creativity. I, I leave the door open for artists, um, painters and photographers and anyone who wants the videographers have come in here. I just leave the door open and they come in and use the space because it's it's just I'm so fortunate to be able to pull something like this off. Yeah, because initially you had
0: made the images in in a warehouse and you're using basically artificial light to serve provide the illumination. And then you basically built a date light studio along the lines of what they used in the 19th century
1: yeah so there's a book written by a dr Raymer in 1906 a definitive book on building the best natural light photography studio so there's schematics and stuff and he goes into this it's like a 200 page book on what it is um, to build the best natural light studio what do you need to do so i actually took the pitch and the dimensions from my 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 um my glass here and in, in incorporated that into my building so when we we Built the building, um, I went around, put a compass on each cornerstone to make sure that this is pointed due north. <laughs> so you want you want to be fo- pointed away from the light. So it's all re- it's, uh, it's all ambient light that's coming into the place, into the mm-hmm. space. And then um, you know, um, another technical issue was a modern day glass would not work for this at all. I mean, I need the UV light to the, the this process adores uv so it's at the the uv end end of the spectrum at the infrared and end of the spectrum so um if you all modern day glass all of it all of it is all UV protected because you don't want your carpets and your couches to fade or your sure. woodwork to fade. So there's always, there's always UV protection, all glass. So if I would have used that glass in the studio, I could not make, you might as well put a brick wall up. So I figured out, it took me six months to organize. I figured out the, the industry that wants as much light into a space is a greenhouse. So um, there's 3,600 pounds of greenhouse glass you know above my sitters and that allows 95 percent of the natural uv into into my space so my carpets will fade and you know the art on the wall will will take some damage from this uv but i I need that uv in order to to create my images
0: in in terms of the glass that you used as the, the the surface for the for the photographs is there something in particular that you prefer to use
1: Um, Black glass. So, um, you know, you can use uh, these are positives, I should explain. So I'm making positive images so that, you know, just like that gentleman that made your tintype that was a piece of tin, you can't put light through it. So but what a lot of photographers would have done, like when when Orlando Scott Goff took that photograph of sitting bowl, he would not have done a tintype like you did, or he would not have done an amber type like I did, which is black glass, which you can't put any light through. He would have made a clear glass. Uh, negative. And from that negative, what he can do is he could make contact prints. So he could sell multiple. He could make a thousand portraits or a thousand contact prints of Sitting Bull and sell every one of them. It would have done him no good to do a tin type of Sitting Bull because now he's sitting on this one. he had, Remember, they didn't have any technology to duplicate anything. They didn't have a scanner or there's no way to to duplicate these things. The only way that they could duplicate them is by using negatives and making contact prints. So he would have, if it was a, you know, most photographers, if you're a professional photographer, you would make negatives, um, glass, clear glass negatives of your sitters. And then your sitters would say, Oh, can I go, by the way, you took my picture of grandma three years ago. We'd like another print. You come in, I pay me another dollar. And I'd, I'd run you off another print. You know, I do another contact print for you. So the photographers, that's, that's, that was the way that they, they ran their business. They weren't, uh, they weren't making positives for viewing most of the time. Yeah. Um, they would make a negative so that they could do contact prints and you could do multiple. So a family could buy five portraits of the same shot. You, you can't do that with your tintype or with my, my black glass, amber type. So yeah, nice. it's just uh, it's stained glass that you'd find like in a church. Um, I buy it in 24 by 24 inch sheets and, and cut it down to the size to fit inside my camera
0: in the documentary that i saw which really was wonderful uh, it was very inspiring oh i'm glad uh, you like watching it. In. but what, some of the Im- images that i saw you making were these sort of conceptual photographs yeah uh, which you would bring together all these people to sort of pose for for your camera recreating scenes from paintings those are yeah. really fascinating uh to tell me about that part of your creativity
1: uh well it, it takes it from that personal intimate portraiture to uh, a collaborative thing and i i there's something about um Uh, collaborating with other artists, other photographers, or someone in makeup or hair or, you know, in a seamstress or a carpenter to make a set. So the idea we, we started with Murderers Gulch, there was a an alley here in Bismarck, North Dakota, which was called referred to as Murderers Gulch, where there was like 14 murders had occurred in this bad alley. It was, you know, a seedy, very seedy part of, of uh, Bismarck. If you read the the accounts from the Bismarck Tribune, um they said that Deadwood had nothing on Murder's Gulch here from Bismarck and people just don't know about Murder's Gulch. So um there's a story where one of General Custer's, remember, General Custer was across the uh, the river over at Fort Abraham Lincoln, just about five miles away. Uh, one of his privates came into Murder's Gulch, and I think he got in a fight or something, got hurt or stabbed or something like that. And um, so the police would not come into Murder's Gulch. That's how bad of a place this was. But the General uh, Custer sent the 7th Cavalry into Murder's Gulch here in, in, in downtown Bismarck to find the guy who had accosted his uh, his private. So, um, so I knew about this uh, this. This uh, we know which alley it is. If you go to that alley, the modern day alley, um, you know nothing's there anymore, and under the old buildings have all been torn down. But we know the location, so where that location is, there's a ten-foot tw- print of Murder's Gulch hangs there. The city hung, you know, with the city's approval, we hung a ten-foot, and it has all the fifty-some collaborators' names and stuff. So we we used an alley a couple blocks away. Um, and we just collaborated and we, we built a set and we had prostitutes and we had bad guys and we had guns and we brought in straw and we had, we had electrical wires that we had, you know, they didn't have electricity back then, yeah. um, I, 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 you know, wiring. So we ran sheets across these wires and, and stuff like that. So the city of Bismarck had given me permission to take over this alley, um, for no other reason than just to create. Um, a piece of work. So, um, that was the first one. So, it's called Murder's Gulch. If your listeners want to look that up, you, if you look up Murder's Gulch wet plate, you can find that. Um, and then we did um, the Capsizing of Humanity, which is based off the raft of the Medusa, which hangs at the Louvre. Um, and it, it seemed kind of poignant. Uh, you know, we came, we came up with this name, the Capsizing of Humanity, because there's a lot of crazy stuff that's going on in the world. And so, we made a raft uh, I had my carpenter, Jason Luter, um, made a raft, and then we um, put all these actors on it. And it was in the middle of the field. We used plastic as our water, and we had a painter paint some waves on on this thing. And we made this the, the, uh, we made the capsizing of humanity, which is our second largest collaboration. Um, and then we did uh, Liberty Trudges Through Injustice, um, based off Liberty Leading the People, which is also at the Louvre. Um, and, uh, you know, with Lady Liberty in the, in the original oil painting, she's carrying a French flag, obviously in the French parliaments in the background, but I made it um, ours by having a United States flag in her hand. And then I put the, the Capitol, the United States Capitol building in the background. Um, Paul Newt painted this eight foot Wood board with the Capitol building, yeah. and um, you know, some people accuse me of like photoshopping in the Capitol building into that shot. And it's all analog; it's all done in cameras. So that I say no, and I, I show him a picture of this. I had a, a, a <laughs> you know an eighteen year old girl holding up this big wood board in the middle of this field. You know, you got to get that just right to actually. Oh, yeah. If you look at the shot. It's pretty believable that that's the Capitol building there, but it's nothing more. And the painting hangs here in my in my studio as a remembrance of that of that day. Um, And then uh, we did um, the throne of the gods, the state. Of North Dakota, let me take over the library. This that the the steps to the state library for the day, and we we camped out there, and we did Zeus with his lightning bolt, and all Medusa, and all the you know Artemis, and all the all the Greek gods and stuff were at his feet. We did that shot, and then next year we missed it this year, but next year we're going to be doing uh, addressing the plague. So we found a fifteenth oh century fifteenth century painting that has um, skeletons and coffins and bodies and all kinds of very, very dramatic scenery. And I've already got a hundred people signed up for this collaboration. Wow. So there's a hundred people have already said I will and and it's there's no these are zero budget understand. Just like that documentary you saw, that was zero budget by the way. I mean uh, Greg and Chelsea, they just decided they wanted to do a five minute short of this documentary. It's on just to let your listeners know on I and mean, you can get it on Amazon. It's of which my last name. They they had no budget. They were gonna do a five minute short and then they just started following me around and a year and a half later, it turns into this hour-long documentary, which you know was zero budget, and then that's what these collaborations are too. It's everyone brings something to the table. Everyone name, everyone's name gets attributed to the work, and, and it's just a collaboration. Mm-hmm. For no other, I don't make any money. I don't charge any money. I don't sell prints, and everyone just gets a, a limited edition signed print if you collaborated. And that's that's the only reason we do it, just for the sake of creating. And when does this happen? You know what I mean? Like when does a large group of citizens from a city get together? and just make something make you know something important and all the plates go up to the state historical society so all those people that helped me with all these large collaborations they are all their name gets put on the back of the plate and that goes up to the state historical society so it, it gives us little like a little snapshot of what you know what what we're about and what we were trying to do here during our times it's 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 rather remarkable you know i think one of the kind of the interesting
0: things that that makes you sort of analogous to you know the people who had their photo studios a hundred, you know, hundred so years ago, is is the fact that you've you've become a facet of the community. You know that you're not just the person people go to to get make their photographs. That you that you are um, not just a, a person you know personality, but that you're sort of integral to the community in which, which you live in that you have relationships with people and people have relationships with you as a result of what you do.
1: And it shows where we're from. You know what I mean? It's This is yeah. where we're from. It's, it's about us, right? It's about what we're doing here. And and that was the, one of the big, um, big points of my building this studio is because it was kind of like you build it and they will come. You know what I mean? Like I want this studio to be the epicenter of creativity in this little you know, um, this little community, um, you know, this rural community and in the middle of North Dakota, I, you know, people I've had photographers flying from all over the United States. I just had a gentleman in about six weeks ago came in from, from Long Island, um, to just do nothing but spend, you know, Friday, uh, Friday afternoon with my studio. We spent some time on Saturday together and just to come in to see the process and, and to learn. And, and it's just, it's just fabulous. I never would have, you know, how do you go from not owning a camera or having any, photographic knowledge whatsoever to having photographers come into your studio from all over the place, um, to, you know, to, to spend the afternoon or and just to create with you. It's, it's a huge honor. And then when they come in, I, there's always something to learn, right? Everyone brings something new. And, and if you're, you're open to that and you're, and you're, you're aware of that and you, you, you try to, um, try to, I'm, I'm constantly learning. I'm trying to pick stuff up from people. Um, there's so much to learn. There's so much to learn with photography. I, I don't think it ever ends, you know? Yeah. You, you said
0: in the documentary uh, that you're not a photographer, or at least that you weren't a photographer. Do you still adhere to that, or do you see yourself as a photographer now?
1: Well, in the docu- i was—I was hounded for years by photographers because I would say I'm not a photographer, and then it got to the point where people got pissed off at me, <laughs> and they would—they would—they would say, "How can you say you're not a photographer?" And but it all stemmed, and I'm—I'm I'm honest about this. It all stemmed. I didn't want to—I didn't want to insult anyone. Because I had had at that point, I've had, you know, very early on, within weeks of me starting my studio, photographers started flocking to my studio. It's like, this is, these are real photographers. I mean, these people are, you know, uh, Mike Lalonde has taken pictures with a camera for 60 freaking years. You know what I mean? Like this is a, yeah. you know, this is a, a photographer a lifelong photographers coming into my studio. What in the heck do I have? To convey, you know what I mean? Like, what do I have to give? So, um, so I didn't want to insult anyone because I knew photographers, I knew what they knew, and I knew what I didn't know, Mm -hmm. and I just didn't want to. And it was just more. I've always considered myself more of an image maker, but I I had a friend um, who was a photographer that I really respect. He just, you know, he's sat down with me and said Shane you just have to you have to accept this so it was kind of like beaten into me that I have to I have to not call myself, a, <laughs> yeah. finally I can call myself a photographer without hurting anyone's feelings or insulting anyone so that's kind of the little story there but it was you know at one point it was kind of a tongue in cheek kind of thing at one point too I was just mm-hmm. well, I'm, I'm not really a photographer and then what are you talking about and then you know it was just that kind of thing so it was all in good spirit and but it was nothing more than I just didn't want to insult anyone that really knew photography because I I didn't. Yeah.
0: Well, my last question that I ask each guest is I ask them to recommend another photographer for our listeners to discover and explore on their own. And it can be anyone. Someone you've long admired or someone you've recently discovered. So who would that photographer be and why?
1: William Martinson from the early 1900s, 1920s, 1930s. Um, if you look at his body of work, he was doing things. This is uh, William Morton Sidney, the gentleman that Ansel Adams called the Antichrist of photography. Wow. So, I mean, if, if you can, you know, what a badge of honor. You know what I mean? To have Ansel Adams, I mean, if you or I could be called the Antichrist of photography by <laughs> Ansel Adams, you know what I mean? Like, that's a pretty good achievement. <laughs> I mean, you should almost make t, t- shirts up, right? <laughs> He is absolutely amazing. I've, I've done some, uh, I've done some work based off his, uh, you know, he's inspired me. I put, uh, Richard Lowen on, uh, it was called, um, the Persecution of Complete Strangers, if you look that up on Google. But the Persecution of Complete Strangers wet plate. You will see uh, we erected, it wasn't a crucifix, but it was a pole. And by, by we tied Richard Lowen to this pole. and We had people down below pointing at him, persecuting him. And the idea for that shot, it was based off of Mortensen work. Um, you'll, you'll see if you look up William Mortensen, you will not, you will be happy if you look up his work, William Mortensen. And he was doing stuff in camera you know, there's no Photoshop back then. I mean, he was doing multiple exposures. He would do cloud scenes. He would have buildings. I mean, if you, if you look at his work, it's all done in camera and he just, he's an inspiration to me. And, and, you know, a lot of his stuff is really gothic and and kind of um, a lot of nudes and a lot of, um, really hard stuff to look at some of the stuff, but they're just beautiful. So I don't, I don't know if your listeners know of him, but he is, um, he, if, if Ansel Adams calls you the um, the anti of photography, I, you, you had to have done something right, right in my book. Yeah, that's great. Well, so sure,
0: thank you so much, man. That was that was awesome. Really enjoyed our conversation. Thank you.
1: Yeah, I, I I really appreciate you having me on the show. It's an honor. Thanks to
0: Shane for joining us. Find out more about Shane and his work by visiting SharonCole.Balkowicz.com forward slash wetplate.htm or i made it easy you can always visit the show notes or the website for the link you can find out more about shane and his work by also watching the documentary falco which which is streaming currently on amazon prime if you're a devoted listener and subscribe to the show write us a review on whatever service you listen to podcasts those reviews allow us to grow you can also subscribe to our youtube channel and our mailing list On the YouTube channel, I offer critiques on images submitted by TCF listeners like you, while the mailing list keeps you updated with all TCF events, including workshops and more. Sign up today. And remember, you can support the show by contributing to our Patreon effort or make a one-time or recurring donation via PayPal. Thanks to Jan Cohen, Holly Seaver, and Rob Feekins for their recent contributions. We also provide a series of eBooks on photography available for purchase on our website. It's my way of sharing my experience and knowledge and another way for you to support the show. And if you can't find every episode of the show on whatever service you listen to podcasts, download the Candid Frame app, which is available for both Apple iOS and Android. And because of your generosity, it's free to download and use. No additional purchases are required. The Candid Frame's audio engineer is Martin Taylor, who you can find at the TheOtherMartinTaylor.com. The show's senior producer is Cynthia Parker, and our music is from Kevin MacLeod, whose royalty-free music can be found at Incompetech.com. And this is IbarianX, and this is The Candid Frame.